morning. Go ahead and have a seat, everybody. My name is Russell. I want to welcome you to Church of the City. Rarely do I have my cell phone still in my back pocket when I walk up here. So I'm going to silence that. Um, Man, really grateful to be with you this morning. My name is Russell. I'm a teaching pastor here. If this is your first time, welcome. Uh, Glad you are here. Can I get the lights to change real quick? That'd be great. Um, Man, you'll notice on your seat, there is a a white communication card. um, And it's just a simple way for us to keep up with you, with what's going on in your world. Um, If anything is happening that you'd like to communicate with our pastoral team, please just note that. Later in our gathering, uh, there'll be an opportunity to drop that in an offering bucket. And it's just a simple way to stay in touch and communicate about what God's up to in your world or just keep um, the basic information current so we can get a hold of one another when and if uh, that that occurs. So we are right now uh, transitioning as a as a church uh, into a stretch of time where we're, we're going to um, begin a series next week that I want to prepare you for before we even get into our, our time around the scripture this morning, uh, that we as a church are, are fairly young. And if you, if you think in terms of overall age of, of a church relative to the age of humans, um, we are still toddlers. Um, we're basically three and a half years young as a new church start here in downtown. Um, and that comes with a lot of really um, beautiful aspects to it, like we are a very flexible, agile, nimble community of people. Um, we can, at the drop of a hat, find an opportunity or one comes to us and we can go serve in the city, which we do on a regular basis in place of our times gathering like this around music and the scriptures. We actually want to embody and act out the ways of Jesus in the city of Portland. And that's pretty simple for us to do, but it also comes with a few issues. One of those issues is how do you, um, how do you make sure that in a young church start with a bunch of you and a lot of us as we figure this out, trying to make decisions about how invested we are in what this church is. And it comes down to one thing, really, whether or not we believe in and are following the mission of God expressed in this church. Now, we're pretty honest about it. Uh, this isn't the church for everybody. Um, you may be sitting here today and you may be evaluating and examining. Maybe you've been here for some months and you're still trying to figure that out. Is this the church community for you? And that's legitimate and good and healthy. The, the key to that isn't, man, does the music strike my preferences? Does that guy who teaches on Sunday actually make sense or not? Um, is there, are there enough programs for my children? Those kinds of things, those are important things, but they aren't the thing. The thing is whether or not this community closely enough resembles the mission of God in the kind of way where you can say, I'm in. I'm with that group of people following Jesus in Portland. So what that, what that amounts to is we have to have some conversations about that. What does it mean to be a part of the mission of God expressed through Church of the City? And it comes in some very challenging and uncomfortable kinds of conversations like, what are you doing with your time? What are you doing as you give yourself away to love and serve the people of Portland and the people of this church community? What gifts do you have that you can contribute and be a part of this particular community of people? Your finances. Uh, how much and, and if any of your money can back up your belief that this mission can't be done without you and without your resources behind it. And so those are the conversations we're going to be having. We have three weeks committed in November, first weeks of November here um, after this Sunday, where we're just going to say, let's have these honest conversations about what it looks like to, to follow the mission of God here at Church of the City 
And then what are the implications for the way that we live our life, for what, the way we serve, the way we um, get involved with our finances? So I want to prepare you for that so you're not blindsided. Challenging conversations. And quite honestly, I am so excited uh, to be able to have those conversations with you in view as we together figure out what God's up to. So that is a, a pretty massive uh, shift for us because we, we really haven't um, talked in this language since the beginning. We've, by and large as a church, been supported financially and by people outside of this community. But what we're going to be steering towards is what happens when this group of people buys into the mission of God here? What does that look like? Where are we going? And how will we get there? So be ready for that starting next week, three weeks in a row. Currently, um, we are uh, just finishing up our first little stretch here in the book of Psalms. Now, as a church, um, one of the things that we, um, we hold on to is we believe that the single best expression of God's goodness on earth comes through the life and living of Jesus of Nazareth, this God in flesh and bones who unrobes himself of, of his godliness, clothes himself in humanity, according to the book of Philippians, and walks in the dust of of us, of our lives, of our issues. And he comes into our world and, and shows up. And that's a pretty profound, pretty massive concept um, in the scheme of world religions. Uh, a lot of world religions have their gods separate and distinct from what's happening on earth. And they are always undergoing power plays, how to get more of what they want from humans. And we wrap ourselves around this person, this God who creates and sustains us, as human beings, and chooses, instead of saying separate from us, he chooses to enter into our story. Now, as such, we have to understand some of the basic concepts that, that build the pathway for this figure to show up, for God to, to put flesh and bones on and walk into our story. And so for us, we're super committed to the teachings of the scriptures. Um, we, we hold to what's happening in the Bible as the best understanding of how God's action intersects the human story. I mean, we have 1,500 years of human history in the scriptures that are, are exactly that. It's God interacting with people. And for us, I think a lot of times we think there's just not a lot of relevance in some of these things. Some of these, you know, maybe even like ones that feel so antiquated or so distant, so far removed from here, now, Portland, Oregon, 2018. But I'd argue this, that people are people are people. We are no more intelligent than people were 3,000 years ago. We are no more uh, progressed. We have some of the, almost all of the same issues. We haven't resolved nearly as much as we would like to have resolved as people. That we are still dealing with the effects of being humans who are broken and looking for hope. And so if we can insert ourselves into that narrative at distinct points to get these the grip on the way God has interacted with people, then we might actually be able to walk away with something good in our space, in our world, as it relates to our issues today. That's our, our journey. And that's why we continually go back to the scriptures, continue to go back to the wide picture of the scriptures, that we are committed to understanding this whole meta-narrative, the big picture, the big story of what God has been up to on earth. Now, in Psalms, Psalms is one of those um, sections of scripture that I think for many of us, as soon as it's said, we check out. I mean, we have memories of things like if you went to church earlier, maybe you went to like a memorial service or a funeral and the Psalms were read and it, it, it's on the screen or maybe someone up front is reading out loud. 
we kind of nod our heads while it's happening and we have no idea what was being communicated through those readings, through those scriptures. And there's a lot of reasons for that. One, like I just said, they feel very ancient and far removed. They were written basically 3,000 years ago. And so we feel like, man, I don't know if that has any relevance. Secondly, oftentimes it's read in very poor English translations, not poor in their quality, but poor in their relevance to us. We've, we've read them before maybe in King James or something where that language doesn't exist currently on earth. We have a different kind of English. And so it feels very distant and far removed because of that. But I think maybe more than all of those reasons, at least for me, and I've, I've confessed this to you, is the genre. The Psalms are poetic. And poetry, whether, I mean, I don't care really how you feel about it, poetry is a challenging genre. If you love poetry, fantastic, well done you, you are the weirdo, outsider, abnormal person. I wish I were you. Yeah, you're loud. You're totally loud. You are in Portland. You're allowed to keep it weird. Absolutely. For the rest of you who struggle with the genre of poetry, it's another barrier. It's another reason why the Psalms just are like, ah, okay, so my church is going through 10 Psalms. Fantastic. I can't wait till that gets over. The reality is um, what we have in the Psalms is a unique glimpse into aspects of the humanity of the people writing these Psalms that we don't get in a story, or we don't get in a law, or we don't get in a letter that we get this very vulnerable interaction with what God's doing as people express what's going on in their soul. And for that reason alone, I think it's worth our energy and time to at least try to appreciate what's happening in the Psalms. Now, here's, here's the issue. I promise we're going to get to a Psalm here in a second. But here's the issue. Um, I've, I've relayed this before this way, talking to people. I mean, we're a church start, and people are always asking, like, outside of circles, like, here locally, like, about a church start. Like, how does that work? Like, how do you do that? How, what's it like pastoring and shepherding a group of people um, that's new and young? And I put it this way often to people. I said, well, if you go into ministry, for instance, in vocational ministry, you're going to become a pastor or clergy somewhere, and you're looking for a place to serve, and you find a, an existing church, um, in many cases, in many ways, a good analogy for what you do is being a triage doctor, um, or maybe even a specialist doctor, but essentially you're, you're there to love and serve people, to take care of their needs, take care of their souls, walk with them towards Jesus, help them move in the right direction down the journey of life towards and with Jesus. Church planting world, church starting world is different. It's more like Frankenstein. Frankenstein, if you recall, is this compendium of parts that you put together and, and in the end, what you're really hopeful of is a miracle. You're hopeful that as you put these pieces together, that life can come out of it. And that's kind of how it feels. That's how it's felt as a church community. Like, oh man, I don't, we're doing this. Okay, we're going to try that. I don't know if there's life in that. We'll see. We'll see if something comes of it. Now, the same kind of relationship happens with scripture. One of the things I like to do like, to keep um, us moving in the scriptures is to keep the scripture intact, to keep it alive. So that means honoring the genre. So if it's a story, let's tell a really good story. I mean, if it's about Jesus or if it's about early church or if it's about David and Goliath, let's tell a fantastic story. If it's law, let's deal with it as law and, and, and try to wrestle with what are the implications of 613 laws in the Old Testament? How does that affect the way people think and feel and all of it? And use it that way. Poetry is one where what we've been doing so far is to try to honor it 
is somehow try to get us to the space where we can feel it, where we can experience it. Because it approaches that part of our soul, right? Like it's intended to come from someone's inner workings to our inner workings. And as it's tweaked them, it begins to tweak us and change us and transform us. But today I'm going to do it a bit different. I'm going to do my absolute best to murder this text. And I want to do it for this reason, in hopes that we can resurrect it in hopes that we can find from all the pieces of what the scripture is, what's actually happening in this piece of poetry. Because I know, if you're anything like me, a first read-through here of a, of a psalm like this, it's just stunting. It just stops us. And we, we, we'll walk away kind of like with a deep breath and shrugging our shoulders, like, that was cool. Someone read a scripture in church this morning, and then I got to go to the Timbers game after this. Yeah, right? Go Timbers. So what we're going to do this morning is we are going to, full confession, completely butcher this text. And in the end, we're going to try to put it back together. Are you with me? Fair? Fantastic? Beautiful. Let's do this. Let's pray. Let's get to it. Jesus, this morning, I'm so grateful for what it means to be uh, a follower of you. And you have, you have just given us so many opportunities to be Humans who are defined not by our shame and brokenness, but people who are defined by your goodness, by your hope. And God, this morning as we wrestle with what it is, uh, again, to be human, what it means to be human, I just pray, God, that you would, you would challenge us and shape us and make us more like you. God, we are desperate for what you have in store for us. And at times we don't know what that means. We don't know what it is you have in store. And at times we have a good idea. And whatever it is, whatever place we're at on that particular journey, God, I pray that you would be the God you've always been, faithful, to love us, to shape us, to give us your absolute best. I pray in your name. Amen. So here's how it's going to work this morning. I'm going to make a general assumption that you have a little bit of understanding of the way um, a, a poem works. Uh, and if you don't, let me, let me just say this. Uh, poetry is very challenging, right? It's a challenging genre to examine and deal with. And so as we, as we take it apart here, as we dissect it, um, and by definition, to dissect something, it's got to be dead or it should be dead. Um, if you dis dissect something that's not dead, um, it's a problem. You should probably think about it um, dying first. So let's just assume here we're dealing with, with just literature, okay? It's not God's word. It's not uh, powerful. It's just literature. And this is, a, this is a first step in our ability to deal with aspects of Scripture. Yeah, it's always in review. We, okay, we're, we think that God's up to something through it, right? He's doing something through this text. And, and that can be maintained. But we're going to put on, our, in some ways, our examiner's glasses. We're, we're going to put on the, the, the glasses that someone who's trying to do a post-mortem on a corpse puts on to try to piece together what happened, what is going on in this body, in this text. I know that's grotesque and whatever. It's the best I come up with trying to make sense of what we're doing this morning. And so what I've done um, as we walk through this is I'm not, I'm not trying to be fancy about it. Very plain. For every section of this poem, and there are seven of them, we call them stanzas, um, for all you literary nuts out there. 
Um, I've, I've just given them each um, a title or, or just a phrase that helps us understand what it is. So the first one here, if you have a Bible, go ahead and open it. You're welcome to, or you can follow along on the screen. Uh, we're in Psalm 9. If you open your Bible, if you have a print version and right in the middle, you basically will land in Psalm. If you have a phone, that's irrelevant. Just follow the prompts and find Psalm and get to chapter 9. So the first one here um, is how many of the Psalms begin. Let's read it, and then I'll, I'll tell you why I titled it the way I did. It starts this way, in Psalm 1. I will give thanks to you, Lord, with all of my heart. I will tell of your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and rejoice in you. I will sing the praise of your name, O Most High. Now, a few things are happening here. Um, we, we know there's a, a verse I didn't include. It's included if you have your text in front of you. Um, this gives us some, some pointers. This is from David. It's set the tune of another song that seems very strange, um, but there, there were actual like melody um, involved in this particular one. Um, and, and that's all we really know about this particular psalm that gives us pretext. So we know it's David, um, and we know it's intended to be musical. And he starts the way that many psalms start, um, by pointing it at somebody. And he points it at God. And that's, that's important. And what he says about God isn't, I hate you, you're horrible, I can't stand you, or you're fine, we're in symbiotic relationship, I'll do my thing, you do your thing. He starts out by giving praise, by pointing and directing his attention to God in this kind of way, where he praises him. So that's how I entitled the section, very blandly. It's no, like, not mysterious. It's praise for the Most High. He praises God, and he calls him this. You're the Most High. And he gives him that honor and that credit. Okay? Fantastic. Let's move on. Second section. Reads this way. My enemies turn back. They stumble and perish before you. For you have upheld my right and my cause, sitting enthroned as the righteous judge. You've rebuked the nations, and you destroy the wicked. You have blotted out their names forever and ever. Endless ruin has overtaken my enemies. You have uprooted their cities. Even the memory of them has perished. Now, if this was a like, if this was alive, and it's not alive. Remember, we've killed it. This is alive. Like the emotional response we're having at these words is the kind of emotional response intended by the author. There is some hard language here. There are some challenging concepts. What's happening here is David, as the author, is expressing his story. And it's been a painful story. And we've talked about that priorly. And he's talking about, I mean, he lives in basically Game of Thrones land. So there are enemies. There are people trying to kill him. His own son has chased him out of Jerusalem and tried to murder him, his son Absalom. Um, and this is just a challenging period of time. So there are physical enemies that he's dealing with. And in his mind, what he's done is he's attributed his survival to God. And he's attributing his survival in the kind of way where he's also saying, I've survived and they've been defeated. That the opposition that he has faced, the enemies he has faced, he's been protected from because of God's work. Now, we've said this before. If you go back and listen a couple podcasts ago, if you were interested in this, things aren't exactly the same. We don't have the same kind of relationship with the world around us that David had. Um, remember, this is the first covenant kind of world where he's, you know, really the representative and his community, the Israelites, are the representatives of God's work on earth. But even there, they are instructed to be a blessing to people around them. So some question marks on whether they should be murdering the people around them all the time or trying to find something a bit more productive to do. Um, it's just a very confusing epic, Okay. But the reality is, as we look through the lens of Jesus, what we see is we see a reorientation to everything happening in the Old Testament. And we understand we are still opposed. We are still opposed by many things, including, not least of which, um, God's mortal enemy, um, Satan himself. And that we still deal with the effects of his work produced in the fall, that sin is still a real thing, that he is still an active, per 
part of the story and narrative of being human. Now, more on that if you want it. If you want it please go back and listen. Um, but f- fundamentally, what's happening here, if we could put it in some, some simple, bland terms, is David is saying that previous opposition has been finished. That, that God has, has taken care of something that, he was, that David was dealing with at a prior time. Okay, fair enough. Fantastic. Let's press on. I can just tell you guys are so elated with this. I love it. You may not be. I geek, I geek out on this kind of stuff, so you just have to put up with it. Third section, third stanza. It progresses. Um, and so David says this, The Lord reigns forever. He has established his throne for judgment. He rules the world in righteousness and judges the people with equity. The Lord is a refuge for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. Those who know your name trust in you, for you, Lord, have never forsaken those who seek you. Now this section, it feels very different than the last section. The last one, David's talking about enemies and God judging them and taking care of David. It's very personal to him. But then David kind of blows up the view of things, and he starts naming this kind of bigger picture reality. That God is the one who's in control, who took care of his issues and his opposition, the struggles that David had. And he's also a God who judges with equity, meaning he does it fairly. He's a good judge. He's a good God. And the way he judges, the way he interacts, is he can see people's pain. He can see people's hurt. He can see when people are destitute or oppressed, and he has compassion on them. He takes care of them. And so from this perspective, what we move into is, as you compare those two stanzas, is some tension between a God who might you know, go to bat for someone like David against other people, but also has a, a wide open heart for people who are, who are hurting and people who are oppressed and people who, are, who have deep, legitimate need. And so the way I put this section to just quite simply is that the God is the refuge judge. He's a refuge judge, meaning those two things together. He's the place people can come, but he is judging with equity. He can see the way we are. He knows what we've done. He knows what we think, and he does what he does really well. Now, hold on to that. We're going to get back to all of these. Press on. The next section. It's a short one, and it turns another corner. Sing the praise of the Lord enthroned in Zion. Now, Zion's a short-term phrase for the promised land, specifically Jerusalem. Um, it's the city of Zion, city on a hill. It's this concept of like, that is like the most holy place at the center of their identity as Israelites, where God's presence would be in the temple and kind of the peak of crest of that little, that little city. So praise, sing praise to the Lord of the Lord and throne in Zion, proclaim among the nations what he has done for he who avenges blood remembers. He does not ignore the cries of the afflicted. Now it feels very similar. Okay. Again, David's naming the fact that um, God is a God who remembers, but it's his tension point. That he's a God who, who can repay um, blood for blood. And, um, and he is someone who doesn't ignore the cry of the afflicted. And what he says to do about that is sing a song about it. Proclaim it to the nations. Tell people about this righteous God. So I put it this way. Tell the story about the God of justice. This is what he says to do. If this is true, if God is a God who is both um, able to see our brokenness and deal with that and able to see the, our affliction and oppression and deal with that, let's tell that story. That's what David is suggesting we do. Let's move on. Five. Lord, see how my enemies persecute me. Have mercy and lift me up from the gates of death, that I may declare your praises in the gates of daughter Zion and then and there rejoice in your salvation. So David returns to a theme he's already expressed priorly, 
um, that God has taken care of his past problems. And here he's requesting, God, please take care of my current problems. So I've entitled it that way. The, the present opposition that David faces is very real. And he's going back to the same source, this God who he's writing this poem to and about. He's asking for help in that situation. Press on. The nations have fallen into the pit they have dug. Their feet are caught in the net that they have hidden. The Lord is known by his acts of justice. The wicked are ensnared by the work of their hands. The wicked go down to the realm of the dead. All the nations that forget God. But God will never forget the needy. The hope of the afflicted will never perish. Now this, this section, I actually titled it improperly on that slide. This section is a section um, where we see a shift from away, again, from David's small situation and into something larger. And what he, the larger picture is, is that God, and if you're writing notes, write this down, not what's on the slide, that God remembers both the wicked and the afflicted at the same time, simultaneously. He has both in view together. And this is, this is a shift as David is, is moving forward. He's, it seems like he's ping-ponging between, I have problems, I have issues, please help me. Or I've had problems, you did help me. And there are still people in great need. People who are afflicted, people who are oppressed, people who are broken, people who need refuge. And David lets both exist at the same time. And he, he reminds his audience of that, that a just God remembers both the afflicted and the wicked simultaneously. Now, this is going somewhere. Hang with me. One more section. He ends this way. Arise, Lord. Almost as a command, but it's a prayerful command. Arise, Lord. Do not let mortals triumph. Let the nations be judged in your presence. Strike them with terror, Lord. Let the nations know they are only mortal. Now, he ends this whole section simply by saying, we're not God, we're mortal. So God, arise. Be the one at the forefront. Be the one in control. Naming what's already true, but putting it out there as a prayer. Now, if I haven't thoroughly killed your soul yet in this examination of a psalm, let me try even harder, okay? So let me put these on the screen, all of them, one through seven, um, so you can see them. Now, I realize your eyes glaze over with a lot of text on a screen, um, but just take this in for a second. Exactly. Take this in for just a second. Um, these are just each of the titles. And, and what's happening right now, what I'm giving you um, is is a methodology for trying to understand what's going on in sections of scripture like this. There are a lot of different ways for us to wrestle with the meaning of different genres of scripture. Now, again, poetry is a very challenging genre. And one legitimate way is simply to let our experiential and emotional response be what teaches us, what shapes our thinking about what that piece of poetry is. However, sometimes, in fact, I would argue most times, a legitimate experience or a legitimate emotional response to a piece of scripture or a piece of poetry is found more often when we understand what it says. And so in order to understand what it says, we have to deal with its parts. We should have to get our hands in it, get a piece of paper out next to our Bible and write, okay, I think this section is saying that. And I think this section is saying this. And if that's both true, then how do they work together? So this is what I've done for you. I put them all out there. Now, this is a big jumbled mess, okay? I mean, I, I ordered them, one through seven, there's some order to it. But if you recall, the Hebrew mind doesn't work like ours. I would like this to be uh, a seven-step plan for dealing with something. It isn't. 
you remember my analogy for the way the Hebrew mind works? Do you remember it? You have a slinky? Yes, someone remembers it. Fantastic. I won't point you out because you probably won't want me to. Um, a slinky. You know a slinky, right? It goes downstairs, always gets tangled. It's a problem. Um, and I think the tangling is even a good part of this metaphor. Um, a Hebrew mind, unlike ours, we think in lines. We're linear thinkers predominantly, post-Enlightenment um, people for about 400 years. Like We are people who think in lines. Hebrew thinkers didn't. They thought in circles. They thought in circles that did progress. They did go somewhere. So like a slinky, if you pull it out, if I handed it to you in the back of the room and said, walk that way, what we would have is we have a very long kind of you know, strange line. But what we, what we could say about that line is that the ideas keep coming back around. The circle keeps coming back around. So we have these, these concepts that are repeated, sometimes in a regular fashion and sometimes in an irregular fashion. So that's what's going on in Hebrew poetry. Hebrew poetry is predominantly written in circles. So you'll see something that resembles something else, and you're like, well, didn't they already say that? And the answer is, yes, absolutely. And in the Hebrew mind, that was okay. In our mind, we're like, you've wasted space. Now I'm bored. Let's move on. But in order to examine the parts of a piece of poetry that was written to a certain people group at a specific time in a language very different than ours, with minds formed very different than ours, We've got to do our absolute best to get into that space. And the tools I've given you already, knowing this is kind of circular, knowing it's poetry, knowing that there are parts to it that make something bigger than those parts individually ever could, well, that's enough for us to play with. So let's do this. Let's compare some of these parts. And I'm going to color code this because I think color coding is awesome. The first and the last, one and seven, they resemble one another. It's a mirroring tactic in, in Hebrew poetry. He begins with praising God, and he ends with praising God, so to speak. Naming who we are, we're mortal. God, rise up over all of us mortals. You are bigger than we are. The beginning, praising him for being the most high. Those are very parallel ideas, and it's a very common way that poetry works in the, in the Old Testament. Um, not all the time, but often. And for a technical term, if you're a geek at all, it's called inclusio. It's including the whole idea in a sandwich, so to speak, and the inner material becomes very, very important. Okay, so let's just shelve those for a minute. They're important, they're there. But I, I would argue they aren't the point of this piece of poetry. Something else is going on with it. So if we move a little bit further into this, in the next slide, what I've put is two parallel ideas. And the reason I put number two and number five together is because they both have to deal with David, content-wise. David's situation, where he names... God, you took care of me in my past, and he names, you'll take care of me in my future. And both those are parallel ideas. And if you look actually down into the Hebrew level of the wording, there are repeated words in those two stanzas, giving the indicator to the audience that those ideas are symmetrical in some way. Well, now we're getting somewhere. Very good ideas. This is like the background or the building blocks behind what David really wants to say. God is in control. I'm going to praise you for it. My situation's hard. He's taking care of me. I hope he'll take care of me in the future. And then what? Big, deep breath. What's coming? And what David does is he highlights a concept. In stanza three and stanza six, he brings up this tension point. Now, I was trying not to unpack it too quickly, but I had to name it as we're going through it because this is what this psalm is about. David names the fact that God is not ignorant. He knows that wickedness is a part of the human story. And as such, he's opposed to that wickedness. That is the narrative of Scripture. 
God created us good, whole, complete people in his image. And what we did is we shook our fists at God and said, I think I know how to do life better than you do. And that brokenness, that shattering of the relationship with God and the image of God in us has been an issue for God ever since. If you want to talk about what the mission of God is, it has always been to establish and maintain relationship with humanity. And the thing in the way of that is our brokenness, is our choices to say, I think I can do life better than you can. And God is opposed to that. That's a problem. That's an issue. And he's trying to resolve that issue. And David can name that. There are people acting so out of all of their wickedness and brokenness that they come to a spot where they would say, I am just completely and entirely uninterested in anything that God has to say or wants. And there's this point in the Old Testament that it's very challenging for us as New Testament readers to deal with the fact that at some point, God lets people do what they're going to do. He lets them be who they're going to be. He allows the consequences of their poor decisions become the story of their life. And that's what he says in those two stanzas. While also saying that there are people who are oppressed and under the thumb of other people, whose situation is dire, who are at the end of themselves and maybe at the end of their lives if something doesn't change. And God sees that too. I think what's happening in these two stanzas is, is David is naming the reality that God is not ignorant. He's not blind to the complexity of humanity. That we individually actually hold both of those things oftentimes at the same time. That we have a certain amount of brokenness in us intact, even as we follow Jesus, if you are a person following Jesus. While we also have deep needs. And David is saying God is aware of both and as a righteous judge, he understands both. He gets both. He sees both. But then there's this one stanza that sticks out. You probably see it now. Where David says, this is what we should do about that reality. That that should become the story of our lives. That we would tell the story of a God who doesn't overlook the person who's in pain and need and destitute. Nor does he overlook the ways that we've rebelled against him, chosen our own path. And if you, if you think about this, this concept, this idea of telling the story of God, this is exactly what happens in Jesus. God is the master of telling his own story. If we were left with this psalm, you know what? I honestly think that we'd have a little bit of privilege to say, you know what? If you're wicked enough, I can write you off. If you're broken enough, sinful enough, chose your own way, I'm just going to you know, excuse myself from caring about you. But God wrote the story in such a way where he realized this tension of our own brokenness and sin and our deep-seated needs. And instead of just letting a psalmist write about it, he began to live it. He unrobed himself of his godliness, like I said, and clothed himself in that, in humanity, in complexity, in challenge, in brokenness, in sin, and in shame. And he walked into the narrative to tell his own story, that I see your brokenness, and I see your needs, and I care. I care enough to show up. I care enough to love you from inside the story. 
And so David's line here, his line about singing the praises of that God, telling the nations about that God, became hugely influential. They are the hallmark of a life following Jesus. That your story begins telling the big story. The story of God's mission. The story of what God's doing. And it's not always passive. At times, it is verbally putting out there and saying, I am this kind of person because God is doing something in me that I couldn't do for myself. I love you the way I love you because you are so deeply loved by the God who made you. See, David here is putting in print, in this poem, at the epicenter, the heart of it, all the feels of what it means to be deeply joined to the heart of Jesus as we live our life every single day. Now, I don't know if we've succeeded in resurrecting this poem, but I'd say this. The sum total of everything that it is is far more than its parts. And dissecting it and taking its parts and trying to play with them will get us closer to the epicenter of what it's about. And if we can get there, if we can just humbly wrestle with this epicenter material, there might be hope for us that it would actually change the way we think, the way we feel, the way we act. So my question to you, it's a really simple one. Where and how is your story reflecting the story of Jesus? Where and how are your actions, are your words, are the way you relate to people reflecting and telling the story of a God who understands how difficult it is to be human and how much he loves humanity. That is it, guys. I've said this a lot, and I feel like I should apologize, and I'm kind of past feeling I should apologize for it. The gospel, the goodness of God, is so simple. It's not rocket science. It is just the simple idea that you are deeply loved by the God who made you. It is simply expressing that through words and actions to people around us. While simple, though, it is very difficult. It is very challenging. And that simple concept intersects a very complicated world. And I get that. So what I'm asking from you today, what I'm pushing into your lap, is to wrestle with that. To wrestle with the simplicity of the gospel you are deeply loved by God, and the, He deeply loves the people around you. Portland is so loved by God. And where do you fit in that story? As you continue to live the ways of Jesus, or dabble with living the ways of Jesus for some of you, and express that you are a different person, more whole, more complete than you've ever been, because of what He's doing in you. Let's pray together. Jesus, this morning, I realize that um, this is a very different kind of topic and sermon and instruction. And yet, I think at its core, at its heart, our shared time together as a community of people around your scriptures, which essentially positions us around you, around your story, around what you're doing, and around the person and work of Jesus. God, I pray that we would be people 
who look increasingly like those ways, like those teachings, like those ethics, like that hope. That God, this wouldn't be all for naught, that we wouldn't get some kind of relief in life because we showed up at church and we feel less guilty because we did. But instead, God, I pray that you'd come and meet us, that you'd inspire us, that you would change the way we think, that you would change the way we feel, that you would define hope for us in the simplicity of your goodness, that you know us and you love us. God, this city is a beautiful city with a huge amount of brokenness and a whole lot that's worth loving. God, I pray that we would see our neighbors and our friends and our family members the way that you do. That you came and walked among us, not because we are privileged in this room, but because we as humanity needed you. We love you, Jesus. We pray in your name. Amen.